0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Return with me once again to the book of Numbers. Picking up where we left off last hour. We are prepared this hour for day 67, Numbers 22 through 24. We technically kind of rushed through the Sihon and Og portion at the end of chapter 21, and the battles that they did there. I may pick up a little bit with that here this hour, and then proceed to our study. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our time and the truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word and the privilege and blessing that we have to assemble together. Father, we thank You for Your faithfulness to bless our time and, Father, to, to shape these studies. It's uh, it's a mile a minute and it's a ton of material, but, Father, in Your grace, the teaching minister of the Holy Spirit just comes alive and I thank You for the privilege and blessing that we have to study, to show ourselves approved. So this day is Yours, Father. Open our eyes, open our ears, and soften our hearts. We thank You and praise You in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so uh, as we were running out of time last hour, the last section of chapter 21 deals with Sihon and Og. And so it's Numbers 21, verses 21 through 35, about 14 verses worth of uh, material there. And let me just, without reading all those verses, just scan down these notes and then we'll, we'll pick up from there. Israel enjoyed two more tremendous military victories over mighty Amorite kings east of the Jordan. Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan. And so you have notes there related to the the meaning of these names. Of course, these are the Hebrew names of non-Hebrew-speaking Gentiles, and so uh, they are adaptations of Moabite names and Ammonite names and, and so forth. Amorite names east of the Jordan River. Israel passed through Moab without confrontation, but Sihon, uh, Sihon's Amorite kingdom stood between them and the Jordan River. When Israel requested permission to pass through, Sihon gathered his army to attack. And so that really shouldn't surprise us. That's what happened with Edom. Edom said, No, you can't come through and, and mustered their army. And then happens again as they work their way around Edom and they get to Moab. But uh, when Sihon does it, now it's game on, because this is a Gentile that's an Amorite, and the Amorites were slated for destruction, and so uh, the warfare then commences. Israel reaped a total victory from the Arnon to the Jabbok, as is described there in verse 24. Israel struck him with the edge of the sword and took possession of the land from the Arnon to the Jabbok. That's like saying from south to north, they took they took it all. Okay, As far as the sons of Ammon, for the border of the sons of Ammon was Jazer. Israel's conquest of Sihon's kingdom made a mockery of the proverb commemorating Sihon's conquest of Heshbon from the Moabites. And that's kind of curious too. When you're looking at verses 25 through 30, there had previously been a proverb. The proverb used to say, come to Heshbon okay? Uh, Let it be built. So let the city of uh, of Sihon be established. Isn't it interesting how a secular proverb can be outdated like that, right? You'd say, well, that didn't age well. The fact is, is uh, for Sihon to be proverbial in one sense gives way for Sihon to be proverbial in an entirely different sense after uh, encountering Israel and being defeated by the God of Israel. Anyway, so, yeah, we got some verses there that preserve the proverb that, that Heshbon used to lay claim to. But uh, no more. No more. All right, the war will be reviewed by Moses in a walkthrough. We're going to get more detail. There is more included in Moses' review. When we get to Deuteronomy chapter 2, verses 30 through 37, we're going to get a lot more detail than what's provided here in the original account of the warfare in, uh, in Numbers chapter 21. Then we have the defeat of og. I guess you've got to close your throat and start with an almost G sound, which is kind of like a swallowing cough with a uh, og. And so og is, uh, means long-necked. It's actually not far off from the Hebrew word for giraffe, which is kind of curious. But um, og, the long-necked. Uh, the record of this war in Numbers is quite short. In fact, there it is. They turned and went out by the way of Bashan, and Oth, the king of Bashan, went out with all his people for the battle at Edrei. But the Lord said to Moses, Do not fear him. I have given him into your hand and all his people in his land, and you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites who lived at Heshbon. So they killed him and his sons and all his people until there was no remnant left of him, and they possessed the land. So the conquest has already begun, but it begins east of the Jordan with these Amorite kings. It's then going to proceed west of the Jordan to lay claim to the promised land itself. Remember, the east side of the Jordan was not within the original promise as uh, the west side was. We'll do some more work on that too because in some senses both west and east fall between the river of Egypt and the great river Euphrates but specifically when God is giving the boundaries of the land and he's dividing it amongst the the nine and a half tribes, uh, all of that land division is to the west of the river Jordan. Okay, And the two and a half tribes that take land east of the Jordan only do so by the permissive will, not by the directive survey that that we're going to see in the time of Joshua. So stay tuned for that. Anyway, it's a short record here given in Numbers. Uh, The review that comes later will be more expansive. Um, Israel occupied the Amorite cities and established an infrastructure in that region. It's described for us here in verses 31 and 32. Living in the land of the Amorites and uh, dispossessing the Amorites who were there. Capturing its villages and dispossessing the Amorites who were there. So, when we get to Deuteronomy chapter 3, and that's going to be next uh, Sunday morning at 11 o'clock, when we get to Deuteronomy chapter 3, we will uh, see more details on Sihon and Og and the warfare that happens there. The back to back victories over Sihon and Og inspire terror in the minds of the Canaanites, as the deliverance of Egypt did in the previous generation. And discuss that a little bit at the end of last hour. All right, which gets us now to the new material for day 67. And uh, chapters 22 through 24, some of you folks have been waiting for this since we first got to the book of Numbers, because uh, honestly, when you think of Numbers, you think of Balaam's ass. I mean, you just think about Balaam and his donkey and the events there. And, and true, it is a, it's a popular story in the book of Numbers, but you don't get to it for, for 22 chapters. So here we are. All right. So getting to chapter 22. So two great victories take place over Amorite large Amorite people groups, so Sihon and Og, and uh, we'll get more details on them as far as as Og is concerned, he was clearly Nephilim, his bed was huge, he was not a normal sized human being, but we're going to get those details when we get to the book of Numbers, they're not related for us here in, I'm sorry, in the book of Deuteronomy, they're not recorded that way in the book of Numbers. So Israel consolidated its position in the Transjordan and readied to cross into Canaan. Transjordan just means east, east of, uh, and then Cisjordan that refers to the near side, refers to west of the Jordan River. So um, they're going to approach from the east. When they had tried a generation ago, they tried from the south. They were going to invade from Kadesh Barnea and they were repulsed terribly. So now they're going to invade from the east. Balak, the king of Moab, observed the object lesson of Sihon and Og and experienced the Lord's intended dread. He's he's scared, and he's supposed to be scared. Okay, so you could say he's in the will of God. (laughs) All right, because he's terrified. So Balak the son of Zippor saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites, so Moab was in great fear because of the people, for they were numerous, and Moab was in dread of the sons of Israel. So Moab says to the elders of Midian, now this horde will lick up all that is around us as the ox looks up the grass of the field. And Balak the son of Zipper was king or Zippor, was king of Moab at that time. So he sent messengers to Balaam the son of Beor at Pethor. So this is his plan. He's going to team up with the Midianites. He's going to combine Moabites with Midianites together in this endeavor. And between the two of these people groups, between the two of these nations or kingdoms, if you will, they're going to be able to afford the fees necessary to hire Balaam. So, Balak understood the conventional warfare could not defeat Israel, and he devised a plan for the employment of supernatural forces. So he's not stupid in this regard. He's actually kind of on to something at this point. But it's going to take him a while to really find the the Achilles heel, if you will, because there will be an eventual failure on Israel's part that uh, will be really the answer to Balak's uh, prayers. So he forms an alliance with the Midianites in verse 4. He says to the elders of Midian. So he's reaching out for allies and assistance. He hires a prophet who specializes in blessings and cursings. And that's pretty evident based upon what we read here in verses 5 and 6. He sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pethor, which is near the river, in the land of the sons of his people, to call him, saying, Behold, a people came out of Egypt. Behold, they they cover the surface of the land, and they are living opposite me. Now therefore, please come, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me." Perhaps I may be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. Now that is, whether it's true or not, that's what the Holy Spirit inspired and put in the Bible, so it is a, it is an accurate record of what Balak thought about Balaam's ministry. Does that make sense? All right, so, and it actually may have more basis in reality than we give it credit for because I think we're all too often do we dismiss some of the, the demonic things that happen and yet we realized in Egypt that the magicians of Pharaoh were able to do quite a few of those miracles that, that Moses and Aaron were doing and it would not surprise me at all if Balaam if Balaam actually had a track record, had a success uh, record of blessing and cursing as uh, as the case may be. And he's evidently built up a uh, reputation, and he charges top dollar. So, he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. This prophet um, specializing in the blessings and the curses. Now, Balaam essentially means not not one of us, right? Not of the people, not of the people, uh, or a foreigner, maybe, or destruction of the people, kind of. Depends on what language we think we're borrowing from uh, to come up with the Hebrew built lam. Uh, Beor is, uh, speaks of burning and that could apply to a lot of hot places, a lot of lands that might have a name of that nature. Pthor, um, probably coming from um, I think Akkadian or one of the, I forget now, uh, but uh, a non-Hebrew language and uh, likely meaning uh, divination, likely meaning uh, a, a location for soothsaying. And obviously he is a diviner, that's what he's called. Uh, he has that title in Joshua 13.22, Balaam the son of Beor, the diviner. Okay. Spoiler alert, if you don't want to know how he dies, don't read Joshua 13.22. But it will be good to know that he doesn't die in this episode, that Balaam does not die in the book of Numbers. He does not die until much later in the uh, story, in Joshua chapter 13. But the verb kasam and the noun kesam speaking to the practice of divination using for human beings to try to peer into spiritual realms in order to discern truth, either present truth or future truth. Any kind of extrasensory perception that's going to be utilizing uh, angelic powers or some kind of fallen angelic powers to try to perceive things beyond the normal human experience would be known as divination. And the Bible forbids it. By the way, the Bible never forbids anything that doesn't exist or is impossible, right? The Bible doesn't forbid you to fly to the moon. You have total permission to fly to the moon any time you want to fly to the moon. Uh, But uh, that's because you don't have any superpowers of flight, neither do I. We can't just fly to the moon because we want to. The Bible doesn't command things that don't exist. So if the Bible says, don't practice divination, what does that tell you? Divination exists. That's right. That the fallen angels and demons are very pleased to commune with human beings to lie to them, to mislead them, to gain control over them and a variety of other things that happen. Alright, so a joint delegation of Moabite and Midianite elders is going to travel to Pethor with an appropriate fee for the divination. And they're begging for a cursing is what they're begging for. So the elders of Moab, verse 7 then of chapter 22, the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with fees for divination in their hand and they came to Balaam and repeated Balak's words to him. And he said to them, spend the night here, I will bring back word to you as Yahweh may speak to me. And the leaders of Moab stayed with Balaam. Now this sparks more questions than answers and I'm very pleased, Uh, very few people even write about this. Uh, But one scholar in particular who did write about this was actually Adam's grandfather, Glenn Carnegie Sr., who wrote a whole article on the oracles of Balaam and the role of Balaam as a Gentile prophet during the the Exodus wanderings because he has a relationship with Yahweh. As a non-Hebrew, he has a relationship with Yahweh. He knows him by name and he talks to him. So, um, in any event... So spend the night here, and I will bring word back to you as Yahweh may speak to me. And the leaders of Moab stayed with Balaam. So then God came to Balaam and said, who are these men with you? Now take note, it's not Yahweh who comes to Balaam, it's Elohim who comes to Balaam. That may be significant. All right, and says, who are these men with you? And Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent word to me. Behold, there is a people who came out of Egypt, and they cover the surface of the land. Now, Balaam doesn't know who this people is, because he's talking to Yahweh as if, you know, Yahweh doesn't know who these people are either, right? So there is a people who came out of Egypt, and they cover the surface of the land. Now come, curse them for me. Perhaps I may be able to fight against them and drive them out. Now this is kind of interesting too. Now we kind of find out what the racket is. Balaam's not the one doing the blessings and cursings. Balaam has learned that he can call upon Yahweh for some blessings and cursings. But uh, of course, Balaam's the one making money on the deal. So God says to Balaam, do not go with them. You shall not curse the people for they are blessed. And as soon as Balaam gets that report, he knows he's out of business. He knows that this is not a contract that he can take because he doesn't have any powers of his own. He's just doing, you know, he's praying to Yahweh and getting these things done. So, Balaam arose early in the morning, said to Balak's leaders, go back to your land, for the Lord has refused to let me go out with you. And again, back it is Yahweh again in this statement. We had started with Yahweh, we had switched to Elohim a couple times, now we're back to Yahweh again. Now I've got to reread Glenn's article so I can remember why he was highlighting these things. It's been a while. All right. So the leaders of Moab arose and went to Balak and said, "Balaam refused to come with us." That's kind of a short paraphrase of a much longer truth. Okay, and it kind of puts the the gist on on Balaam's head for just he doesn't want to do it. When really the explanation was, "They are blessed. You shall not curse these people. The Lord has refused to let me go with you." So. Balaam says, the Lord won't let me go. They just say, he doesn't want to come. He refused. So Balak again sent leaders more numerous, more distinguished than the former. Again, we saw this this morning. Don't take no for an answer. Just sweeten the deal and go back a second time. That works most of the time, okay? So they came to Balaam and said to him, thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, let nothing, I beg you, hinder you from coming to me. That's a blank check right there. That's a name your price. Let nothing hinder you. I will indeed honor you richly. I will do whatever you say to me. Name your price. It's yours. Please come then. Curse this people for me. So Balaam replied to the servants of Balak, though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not do anything, either small or great, contrary to the command of the Lord my God. And that's where the chapter should end if we want anything good to happen for Balaam here, but that's not how the chapter ends. Because while verse 18 is a great answer and biblical and awesome, verse 19, he doesn't stop there. He says, now please you also stay here tonight and I will find out what else the Lord will speak to me. So even though he knows the will of God, he's willing to give it a second shot trying to change God's mind or talk to God or see if maybe there's some fine print somewhere. What else is there to say? God said, no, this people is blessed. So God came to Balaam at night and said to him, if the men have come to call on you, rise up and go with them, but only the word which I speak to you, you shall go. Well, that ought to be a surprise. Balaam was, you know, the last time Balaam got the word from God was, no, don't go. But now God's saying, okay, you can go. That's a trap. The test and Balaam fails because he hears what he wants to hear. So Balaam arose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the leaders of Moab. But God was angry because he was going. You know, when the answer changes like that, when the answer changes like that, you better be suspicious. You better ask, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You know, you know, when when a child asks their parents, you know, can I have something? And they say, no, you're going to spoil your dinner. And then two minutes later they ask the same thing again. You know, can we have ice cream? Okay, go ahead. Well, wait a minute, two minutes ago you said, no, you're going to spoil your dinner. Now you're saying, go ahead. See, the suspicious child ought to say, wait a minute, that was too easy. What's happening there? Anyway, Balaam should have known. And, and God was angry. By the way, if, if, if um, my views on Balaam are shaped by the Bible's commentary on Balaam, we have the New Testament passages describing this. He loved the wages of unrighteousness. Second Peter chapter two and verse fifteen. So he was definitely for profit. He was not, you know, he was in it for the money. He loved the wages. His activity was, uh, and in Jude eleven, another commentary here, talking about false teachers in the church age that go the way of Cain, for pay they rush headlong into the error of Balaam, and they perish in the rebellion of Korah. So Jude verse 11 gives us a, just a marvelous trinity of expressions related to false teachers, and Cain's evil is called the way, Balaam's evil is called an error for pay, and then Korah, we saw this morning, the, the rebellion of Korah is, uh, is listed there. Notice it's not Korah, Dathan, Abiham, and on, it's just the rebellion of Korah as the primary instigator of that rebellion in, uh, in Numbers. Anyway, so his activity is neither a way like Cain's nor a rebellion like Korah's. Balaam's activity is called an error and it is called an error for pay. He's happy to make that error as long as he's uh, profiting off of it. This error is initiated when believers make decisions on the basis of monetary considerations, that is, for pay. If you compromise your doctrine because of a financial consideration that's the error of Balaam, okay, And sadly, believers do it all the time. It's heartbreaking. This error is a slippery slope that gathers momentum as it rolls downhill. It says rushed headlong into the error of Balaam in uh, again, that's that second Peter passage or the Jude passage we were just looking at. The teaching of Balaam is a continued threat to church age saints in the local church. That's why it's referenced in Revelation chapter two and verse fourteen. I have a few things against you because you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. So it's a snare. It can still exist in the church age. Who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. And we haven't gotten that far in numbers yet, but this is where Balaam finally succeeds. He finally gets to cash in on the big payday that he was hoping to get. And that's what gets, uh, that's what gets featured in, uh, in Revelation chapter 2. All right. So returning back to Balaam then in Numbers 22, the discourse with God is quite interesting. Uh, he instructed the delegation to wait while he inquires of Yahweh again. He's accustomed to conversations with God. You know, God comes to him and says, who are these men with you? It's conversational. Like this isn't the first time that it's happened. And Balaam says to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent word to me. And so uh, evidently there's a, a conversational approach that Balaam is accustomed to having with Yahweh. And anyway, we read through all of that. He's a bit ignorant though as he's informing God of these strange people coming out of Egypt. A little bit hilarious, of course, because they're God's people. God's the one that brought them out of Egypt. But Balaam doesn't know that. Balaam is obedient to the instructions the first time, but then he wants to go back a second time. Even though he told him that Yahweh won't let him go, when they they up the ante, he really, really wants the paycheck. Balak's second delegation is sent to Balaam with a blank check for Balaam's services. He assures Balaam that money is no obstacle. Balak urges Balaam to let nothing be an obstacle to him. So he declares, or he laments, that he is powerless against the sovereignty of God. You know, you can read that in two different tones of voice. When he says, there's nothing I can do. Balaam replied to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could do nothing, either small or great, contrary to the command of Yahweh, my Elohim. Darn it. Right? He's almost like he's disappointed. He says, man, I wish I could. I wish I could. So he instructs the delegation to wait as he inquires of the Lord one more time. Let me ask just one more time. Again, if you're looking for an example not to follow, this is a textbook case. Don't do what Balaam is doing here. So Balaam's second discourse with God. God instructs Balaam to go with the delegation. He says, yeah, go ahead and go with these people. Like I say, that should have been a red flag saying, oh, wait a minute, what are you saying here, Lord? Again, we can't read the tone of voice. Maybe the Lord said, yeah, go ahead, go with his people, right? And Balaam should have picked up on that. And God becomes angry that Balaam is doing so. And this really, I think this is the, the stand in the breach test. Remember, Moses passed this test repeatedly until Moses finally failed it. Balaam fails it first time out here, or second time out, I guess you would say. He failed the the stand-in-the-breach test that Moses passed. And um, that stand-in-the-breach test, if you're not familiar with the terminology, but, you know, uh, maybe everybody else has fled, but you're the one willing to stand and take a stand and defend the the weak spot on the wall. Uh, Abraham had a stand-in-the-breach test when he was told to sacrifice Isaac. And uh, Moses had a stand-in-the-breach test several times. And uh, passed most of those. Uh Balaam's stand in the breach test was a failure. And uh, he goes along with it thinking that he's going to cash in, he's going to make money on this deal, doesn't realize that uh, God is his adversary, God is his Satan in this, uh, in this episode. So God was angry because he was going and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary, as a Satan Against him. The Hebrew word for adversary is where we get the name Satan. So he was riding on his donkey and his two servants were with him. So between the four of them, somebody's got some common sense. Okay. And it's not Balaam and it's not the two servants. Okay. Oh, the last point there on point D, 7D. Balaam typifies the asking with wrong motives believer who operates in accordance with his own lusts, maintains a friendship with the cosmos world system. We're warned about that in James chapter 4. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? I mean, these verses right here are just screaming Balaam in the book of Numbers. Alright, so the adversary goes forth to destroy Balaam. This adversary is not Satan. This adversary is the angel of the Lord, God himself. The angel of the Lord is the Lord Jesus Christ in a pre-incarnation Christophany. We see this repeatedly throughout the Old Testament. We're not newbies with respect to the angel of the Lord. Um, understand he freely accepts worship, which a, a normal angel would never do. That elect angels never accept worship. That this is a pre-incarnation. This is God the Son in the angelic manifestation as the angel of the Lord. The angel of God the Father. Alright, so the Lord positions himself as a Satan against Balaam. The Lord permits the donkey to have greater spiritual vision than the erring prophet. And the donkey sees more clearly than either the prophet or his two assistants. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, the donkey turned off from the way and went into the field. That makes sense. Okay. Better than walking right up to the angel of the Lord with the sword in his hand. So the donkey uh, has the bright idea here. Turns off and goes into the field. But Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back into the way. Her, by the way, it is a female donkey, if that matters to anybody. Alright, verse 24, the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path of the vineyards with a wall on this side and a wall on that side. So, uh, yeah. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she passed, uh, pressed herself to the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. And the angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn to the right or to the left. So the donkey now is out of options and just Sits down, plops down. Donkey saw the angel of the Lord. She lay down under Balaam. So Balaam was angry and struck the donkey with his stick. That's three times now that Balaam has physically abused this, uh, this donkey. So the Lord opens the mouth of the donkey and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And, and again, you just have to laugh as you read this because Balaam isn't humble. He isn't fearful. He doesn't just fall before the glory of the Lord and say, "Why is my donkey talking to me?" Okay. Instead, he's just so carnal and so angry that he's gonna he's gonna argue back because you have made a mockery of me. If there had been a sword in my hand, I would have killed you by now. Okay. Well, there is a sword in somebody's hand at the moment, and it's you know it's not Balaam. The sword is in the Lord's hands, and, and Balaam is this close to his own sin and to death. So the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey, on which you have ridden all your life to this day? Have I, you know, it's me. Have I ever been accustomed to do so to you? And he has had to admit, he said, no. Okay. Have I ever spoken to you like this before? <laughs> yeah. No. All right. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand and he bowed, bowed, bowed all the way to the ground. Alright. So um, the donkey has the better vision. Balaam is functioning according to greed. A lot of scriptures there that address that. He doesn't see the Lord in his path. And that's the thing we get blinded to so much. If we're just fixed on money there's a ton of things we're never going to see because our, our, our attention is focused on the wrong object. And then the donkey gets, not only does have better perception, he has better preaching. He's actually speaking truth. He's communicating in an effective way. Greater spiritual message than the erring and mad prophet. Finally, the Lord opened Balaam's eyes to see the pending sin unto death. Now the one thing that saves his life, saves David's life later on, is the instantaneous, split-second reaction of immediate fear of the Lord. The immediate humbling, the immediate no-excuses response. David will have that when we get to 2 Samuel, and and Balaam has it here. I have sinned. (laughs) All right, there you go. I have sinned. I did not know you were standing in the way against me. Now then, if it is displeasing to you, I will turn back. Yeah, you think? (laughs) Okay. Probably standing there with a sword is a good clue. But, the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, no, go with these men, but you shall speak only the word which I tell you. So Balaam went along with the leaders of Balak. This actually is going to make matters worse. This, is going to put, this judgment of God's is going to put Balaam in worse circumstances than had he just stayed home and said, sorry, I can't go. Because now he's going to go and now in the, in the witnessing of Balak he's going to bless Israel repeatedly. All right, so he finally gets a face-to-face with Balak. They meet on the border of his land. It's like meeting, like giving a royal welcome. It's like coming out to greet a, a foreign dignitary and uh, affording tremendous honor to, uh, to Balaam in this way. On the, on the Arnon border, at the extreme end of the border. And Balak said to Balaam, did I not urgently send to you to call you? Why did you not come to me? Am I really unable to honor you? So Balaam said to Balak, behold I have come now to you. Am I able to speak anything at all? The word that God puts in my mouth that I shall speak. And it's uh, not going to please Balak. Here's a spoiler alert. It's going to be all blessing for the Jewish people. And every time he tries uh, just more and more blessing keeps coming out. So Balaam went with Balak and they came to Kiriath Huzoth. Balak sacrificed oxen and sheep and sent some to Balaam and the leaders who were with him. So just like uh, in the Levitical priesthood, when you offer the animals and then the priesthood gets to reap the animals, well this is a great honor for Balaam to uh, do the sacrifices, send the food to, to Balaam. And it came about in the morning that Balak took Balaam and brought him to the high places of Baal, and he saw from there a portion of the people. A glimpse of the people, a portion, uh, uh, the end of the camp, just a little corner of the, of the people. Alright, so that gets us to Chapter 23. They're one of the high places of Baal. They get a glimpse of God's chosen people. All right, so we continue on in the next chapter. And um, now we see Balaam taking over. Balak previously, Balak is the one that determined how many animals to offer and who, what, where, when, why. But now Balaam is taking over to give the commands. Balaam takes command, takes leadership over Balak's religious ritual. He says, "Build seven altars for me here, and prepare seven bowls and seven rams for me here." So he's barking orders and saying, "This is what has to happen." And and uh, not only is he getting paid, you know, whatever he wants, but Balak has to fund the whole thing, with the altars and the bowls and the rams. And so they do. Balak did just as Balaam had spoken, and Balak and Balaam offered up a bowl and a ram on each altar. They're doing this together. So this prophet, who this for prophet prophet who is accustomed to talking to Yahweh, he, uh, he's also sacrificing to Baal. And Balaam said to Balak, stand beside your burnt offering. I will go. Perhaps Yahweh will come to me and whatever he shows me, I will tell you. So he went to a bare hill. Now God met Balaam and said to him, and it's curious, every single time here, he mentions the name of Yahweh, but it's Elohim that goes to him. It's Elohim that goes to him, and and uh, I think the the distinction being uh, is that even though maybe previously he'd had a, a prophetic ministry, but Israel's now a nation. Israel has left Egypt. Israel is now uh, you know entering into their land, and and uh, Yahweh is the God of Israel. Yahweh is not going to come to. Uh, Balaam anymore, but Elohim comes to Balaam, just by that name. Am I making sense? It's the same God, of course, but by that name. He's coming to him as Elohim, he's not coming to him as Yahweh. Even though he's using the name. Alright. So God met Balaam and said to him, I have set up seven altars, I have offered a bowl and a ram on each altar. Yeah, to Baal, by the way, but he leaves that part out. Then the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, return to Balak and you shall speak thus. And uh, and these words, this discourse is recorded here. He returns to Balak and while he and all the leaders of Moab are standing there by the burnt offering, and here's the discourse. And I tell you, the content of these are remarkable uh, beyond anything I think Balaam even understood as they look forward to future blessings, millennial blessings, Jewish blessings. So he takes up his discourse. All right, yeah. This message was the first of four prophetic blessings which the Lord gives to Balaam. Verses 7 through 10. We're going to have the second one in 18 through 14. And then the third and fourth both come in chapter 24. These messages are prophetic poetry, Mashal. We studied that vocabulary in the introduction to the book of he- uh, the book of Proverbs. So he took up his discourse, he took up his poetic uh, utterance, his parable, his proverb. And he said, from Aram, Balak has brought me, Moab's king from the mountains of the east. Come, curse Jacob for me, and come, denounce Israel. How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom Yahweh, whom the Lord has not denounced? As I see him from the top of the rocks, as I look at him from the hills, behold, a people who dwells apart and will not be reckoned among the nations. That Israel is unique. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. All right. Well, so much for cursing him. (laughs) All right. So Balaam's not happy. Or Balak, I'm sorry. Balak is not happy. Balak says to Balaam, What have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies, but behold, you've actually blessed them. And he replied, Must I not be careful to speak what Yahweh puts in my mouth? Okay? That's the utterance. This is what Yahweh commands. So Balak says, Please, come with me to another place. Let's try this again. And remember, you know, insanity, you're doing the same thing over and over again hoping for the different results. Please come with me to another place from where you may see them, although you will only see the extreme end of them and will not see all of them, and curse them for me from there. So they try this other place out. They went to the field of Zufim, to the top of Pisgah. Keep that place in mind, because this is where Moses gets to see the uh, promised land before he dies. Anyway, it's a high spot, able to see things at a distance built seven altars, offered a bull and a ram on each altar. So here we go again. This is now 14 bowls and 14 rams on 14 altars. And he said to Balak, stand here beside your burnt offering while I myself meet over there. So the Lord met Balaam and put a word in his mouth, said, return to Balak and thus you shall speak. And guess what? It's another blessing. So he comes to him again. Behold, standing beside his burnt offering and the leaders of Moab with him, Balak said to him, what has the Lord spoken? So now here's this discourse, okay? So he's trying it again from a different mountain without such a clear view. And and again, you know, and just think about how many, this is like religious people that are floating from one church to another church, they're trying this, they're trying that, just trying to find something that's going to work, anything, just to get to the result, the outcome that they think they deserve. So this is the discourse, uh, again, the mashal, Arise, O Balak, and hear, and give ear to me, O son of Zippor. God is not a man that he he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. He has said it, he will he not do it? Has he spoken, and will he not make good? The covenant nation is still the covenant nation. He will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. Behold, I have received a command to bless. When he is blessed, then I cannot revoke it. He has not observed misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt. He is for them like the horns of the wild ox. For there is no omen against Jacob, nor is there divination against Israel. So any satanic power is just doomed to fail against the covenant nation that God has blessed. At the proper time it shall be said to Jacob and to Israel what God has done. Behold, a people rises like a lioness and like a lion lifts itself. It will not lie down until it devours the prey and drinks the blood of the slain. So Balak said to Balaam, do not curse them at all nor bless them at all. Just close your mouth. Stop. Balaam replied, did I not tell you? Whatever the Lord speaks, that I must do. So guess what? Here we go again. Balak said to Balaam, please come, I will take you to another place. Perhaps it will be agreeable with God that you curse them for me from there. Now the problem is not the locality. The problem is not you're, you haven't found the right mountain yet to, to, to please God. Now a pagan would think that way. A pagan would think, well, we just need the right mountain at the right place for, to appease the, the right God. Not how it works. God owns all these mountains. He created all of it. But uh, of course the pagan has no concept for any of that. So now they're going to go to the top of Peor. Now keep this in mind, Peor, because it's going to be associated with judgment that comes shortly. Okay? So to the top of Peor, which overlooks the wasteland. And Balaam said to Balak, build seven altars here for me. Prepare seven bowls and seven rams for me here. And here we go again, all right? Which gets us now to chapter 24. One more attempt from an even further mountain. And that's another thing too, how much effort are they putting into this? How far have they walked? You know, and at this point can you even see a little glimmer of what are you looking at at this point? It just seems each time just gets worse and worse and worse. And that's the nature of addiction, that's the nature of idolatry, that's the nature of so much rebellion against God. The more we keep insisting that, that we're making ourselves happy, the more miserable we're getting in uh, the hand of God's judgment upon us. Alright, so chapter 24 then when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go as at other times to seek omens, but he set his face toward the wilderness. So at this point, he's done asking. He's done even talking to Yahweh. He knows what the will of God is. He understands the will of God and does not inquire of the Lord. He's Now he's fully on board the blessing uh, procedures. And, and really, this, this could be his escape. This could be... For Balaam, anyway, this could be uh, the best outcome for him, uh, and it's sad what we see happening in the upcoming chapters here, because he starts to work behind the scenes to manipulate things. He is so desperate for the to cash out on this. And we'll see that here shortly. So this message is not only a mashal like the other ones were. This one is also a nuum. Do you know what a nuum is? It's a it's a burden. It's an oracle. It's it's a weighty. Oracle message, okay? And it contains a sense of weight or a sense of doom, if you will. It's a heavy message. Anyway, it's used in a lot of places in the Old Testament. So he did not go as at other times to seek omens, but he set his face toward the wilderness. And Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe, and the Spirit of God came upon him. And it's curious, even though this is, I believe, this is the furthest away that he's ever done, he actually has the clearest view because he has the Holy Spirit opening his eyes and giving him the vision, giving him the insight. So he takes up his discourse and says, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor. So he's had three other statements, but this one he's actually beginning with a prologue. He's beginning with his name. Balaam, the son of Beor. The oracle of the man whose eye is opened. The oracle of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty. And these titles, I tell you, these titles, I think it's legitimate to ask ourselves is he only just now receiving those titles? Or has he had those titles all along from an, from an event before we ever meet him in this text? That this was maybe at his commissioning original years ago as a as a prophet of Yahweh, and uh, but then he's been in the the for profit business, and he's uh, he's only now is he be awake is he being reawakened to the uh, the original calling that he had back in the day. Anyway, so we have Yahweh, we have Elohim, we have El Shaddai, we have various names. And and you've got to ask yourself, where does the Gentile learn all this stuff? How did he learn all this stuff without having Hebrew scriptures to learn from? It's like, did he learn from Jethro, the the priest of Midian? Did he learn from uh, Job or one of Job's descendants? If Job was centuries prior, one of Job's descendants? Was there a people group here in the wilderness that had an orientation to Yahweh besides the Jewish people? Because Balaam seems to be uh, tracking quite well with all of this. All right. He sees the visions of El Shaddai. Falling down, yet having his eyes uncovered. How fair are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel. I think falling down, yet having his eyes uncovered. I think this is, this is his repentance moment. He knows that he's been, his eyes have been closed all this time, and now they're, now they're open. This will be the greatest message he'll ever give. How fair are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel, like valleys that stretch out, like gardens beside the river, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. Water will flow from his buckets, and his seed will be by many waters, and his king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. We're going to see Agag later, in fact, much later. It's curious that he will be mentioned as early as he's mentioned here. God brings them out of Egypt. He is for Him like the horns of the wild ox. He will devour the nations who are his adversaries. He will crush their bones in pieces and shatter them with his arrows. So God brought them out, and He intends to use them to conquer everything in that land. They're going to be the unstoppable force in in Joshua's conquest, devouring nations, crushing bones, shattering with his arrows, He crouches, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares rouse him? Blessed is everyone who blesses you, and cursed is everyone who curses you. So essentially, his closing finale of this oracle is a restatement of the Abrahamic covenant from Genesis 12.3. Marvelous message here. And I tell you, we have um, different statements and different... um, Prophecies, things that come out of Balaam's mouth in these four oracles actually come back again in later eschatological studies, prophetic studies, coming back to this. All right. Make sure I don't lose any details here. Described as one overcome with the glory of divine revelation. This is probably the, the greatest uh, oracle he's ever delivered, Maybe whatever he's done up till now in his career, you know he's done some blessings, he's done some cursings, he's made a name for himself. I'm sure he's, he's profited mightily, but this is the, this is the greatest uh, oracle that he's ever uttered because it's coming straight from the mouth of, of the Lord. this idiom about opening the eyes. We had a last chapter with Balaam's eyes that were open. Uh, We've had it elsewhere in Scripture with Adam and Eve, with Hagar, with Jacob. But it is a singular, the spiritually opened eye, singular, addresses Balaam's entire vision. And it's communicated here. Him who hears the words of El Shaddai, God Almighty, falling down and having his eyes uncovered, receiving spiritual revelation through ecstatic experience. Okay, We don't do this today. Okay, This was a feature in the early church. This is a feature for prophetic revelation. This is a feature through the, uh, the ecstatic experience of receiving divine revelation. We can have illumination. We can have insights. Okay, we can have a spiritual breakthrough if you want to use that language, um, when through the gift of the Holy Spirit our our understanding is unlocked in a in a remarkable way. That's illumination, not revelation. Big difference on that. So this message highlights the blessings of Israel living securely in the land of promise. And by the way, this is only the third out of the four that he's going to deliver. So Balak is furious with him and fires him. I don't know why he didn't fire him two tries ago, okay, or after the first attempt. Because all he's done now, there's been a threefold blessing of these people. Balak is willing to put up to to mortgage his entire country and and the neighboring country, and, uh, and all he's got now is a triple blessing. So Balak's anger burned against Balaam, and he struck his hands together. And Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies, but behold, you have persisted in blessing them these three times. Therefore, flee to your place now. I said I would honor you greatly, but behold, the Lord has held you back from honor. Yahweh has cost you your paycheck, (laughs) held you back from honor. So Balaam said to Balak, Did I not tell your messengers whom you had sent to me? You know, I told you so, I told you three tries ago. Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not do anything contrary to the command of the Lord, either good or bad, of my own accord. But the Lord speaks, that uh, what that I will speak. Okay, So he's only speaking what the Lord gives him. And now, behold, I am going to my people. Come, and I will advise you what this people will do to your people in the days to come. Now that there is the problem. Because that right, right there. Balaam is inviting for a future consultation and a future plan of action because this confrontational blessing cursing thing just isn't going to work. But he says, if you really want to get to the people, you come and I will advise you. And he does. He becomes an advisor for the pure incident. And the pure incident works. The pure incident causes God's own wrath upon God's own people. But I'm getting ahead of myself. That's just the invitation. I'm going to my people, come and I will advise you what this people will do to your people in the days to come. All right, finally then his fourth message. It's also called a burden or an oracle. The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is open. The oracle of him who hears the words of God and the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty. Again, Most High, that's the LL El yon we had, we had seen that last with Melchizedek, when Melchizedek and, and Abraham were, were taking communion. Falling down, yet having his eyes uncovered, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. And this is even greater than the third message, because this is looking forward eschatologically. A star shall come forth from Jacob, a scepter shall rise from Israel. And it's curious, you take this, and you can, actually you can put it, I think you can put it side by side with, uh, with what Jacob was prophesying about, uh, the scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. And you can take a message given to a Jewish prophet, a message given to a Gentile prophet, and we have two witnesses now, one Jewish, one Gentile, to the coming of the star of, uh, of our Savior. So a scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth. Okay, footnote on that. Okay. Edom shall be a possession. Seir, its enemies, also will be a possession. While Israel performs valiantly. One from Jacob shall have dominion and will destroy the remnant from the city. So he's going far beyond anything contemporary to his lifetime. He's going far beyond Moses and Joshua and the chosen people in the wilderness. He is looking forward to the coming second advent of Jesus Christ and the real conquering of what's going to happen when Jesus Christ brings in the kingdom. And he looked at Amalek and took up his discourse and said, Amalek was the first of the nations, but his end shall be destruction Looked at the Kenite and took up his discourse and said, Your dwelling place is enduring and your nest is set in the cliff. Nevertheless, Cain will be consumed. How long will Asher keep you captive? I mean, he's going on. He's not just talking about Israel. He's talking about Gentile nations as well. He took up his discourse and said, Alas, who can live except God has ordained it? But ships shall come from the coast of Kittim, and they shall affect Asher and will afflict Eber. So they will also come to destruction. There's a sequence of things here through various historical stages and I think it's remarkable that it comes this early in Israel's history and it's coming through a Gentile and it really stands unique. It absolutely stands unique until Daniel presents his vision of the, of the statue. Until Daniel talks about the four kingdoms of Babylon, Persia, Greece and Rome. And really that's what these ships of Kittim are all about anyways. Rome. All right. so Balaam arose and departed and returned to his place, and Balak also went his way. So, message number four. Again, it's an oracle, like the third one was, uh, from him whose eye is open. He hears the words of El. He knows the knowledge of El Elyon. He sees the vision of Shaddai, the Almighty. It's an awesome vision concerning the second advent of Jesus Christ, including the tribulational warfare that precedes it. And I think this text needs more attention than it's ever been given, and that's why I I think um, Glenn was, was really focused on it. Balaam returns to his own home, but he doesn't stay there long. He'd already invited Balak to show up for a consultation, and apparently the fruit of that consultation happens in very short order. Because he is back in Midian when Israel wages war. We, we will see him again in Numbers chapter 31. He was the primary instructor for the Midianite and Moabite seduction of Israel. We're going to see that when Israel finally fails, it's not because a Gentile prophet cursed them. It's because Gentile women seduced the Jewish men. And they get wrapped up in this national uh, idolatry episode. National fornication event. Talking one of the biggest, you know, orgies in world history right here. Okay, as this entire nation begins to play the harlot with the Moabite women and the Midianite women. And much of this we'll get to on Tuesday night when we come back. So that's my teaser. Um, is it Tuesday night or is it next hour? Wait a minute. Okay, now next hour we're going to do, yes, we're going to do Moab seduces Israel in Numbers 25, and then the second census in Numbers 26. So stay tuned, it's coming up next hour. We'll just have a 20 minute break, and then we'll come back for the debauchery. But I think the, the, the Bible's commentary on this, though, we don't want to miss that. Okay? He is back in Midian when Israel wages war against them. He was the primary instructor of the Midianite and Moabite seduction of Israel. And that comes from, again, Revelation 2.14. I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So when the direct approach wouldn't work, when a, when a, when a, a straight cursing could never take effect... Through this teaching, then, he could influence Israel to become idolaters. And guess what happens as soon as Israel turns to idolatry? Balak doesn't have to curse him anymore. God himself starts to judge his own people. He did so for pay with a love of unrighteous wages greater than his fear of the Lord. His love of unrighteous wages greater than his fear of the Lord. So again, that's Second 2 Peter 2.15. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. That's God's commentary there in Second Peter. The mute donkey speaking with the voice of a man restrained the madness of the prophet. And then Jude 11. Alright, so that's what we're dealing with there. So we'll take a break. We'll come back and we'll take the sin of Peor. It's one of my favorite chapters anywhere in the Bible. And uh, we'll have some fun with that. And then we get to the second census, just like we did with Numbers chapter 1. There's another census in Numbers chapter 26 because it's been 40 years and uh, people have died and a new army is now taking the field and they're not quite the same strength that they were 40 years ago. But It is what it is. Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for this time together. I thank you for the story of Balaam. And I pray that we understand it, that we learn from it, and that we be ever uh, fearful of uh, following that path, Father, going the way of Balaam and that error. So Father, uh, continue to keep our eyes fixed on You. We thank You, we praise You in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.